hello and welcome to Men, Mother, Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Brian Kaplan, Professor of Economics at George Mason University. And the subject of our discussion was his latest book, Don't Be a Feminist, which I've written a review of. Brian wrote a counter review and a review of my book. We've had an exchange of words um, over the past several months. And so we finally had a face-to-face conversation about the issues we disagree on. There's also an extended version of this episode, which is available at my Substack, louiseperry.substack.com, where you can also find bonus episodes and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. So Brian, we have been um, exchanging essays <laughs> for the last couple of months about, um, first of all, about your review of my book, Case Against Sexual Revolution, and then I did a review of your latest book, um, which is a collection of essays. The, the essay that um, is most pertinent to our conversation today is the first one, Why You Shouldn't Be a Feminist. Don't be a feminist. Address your daughter. And then, uh, yeah, we've had some we've had some back and forth on, on Twitter, Substack, whatever. And so, and now we're talking face-to-face, we're going to have it out, whether or not one should be a feminist. Sounds good. I'm ready. <laughs> Do you want to start by just explaining... Uh, it basically, your, your thesis in the Don't Be a Feminist essay. The motivation really starts with, I've got an 11-year-old daughter, and the question is, what do I tell her about feminism? I've got a lot of criticisms, and I say, well, how do I explain it to her? So, well, step one is, what does it even mean? Uh, you do go to a lot of dictionaries that will just say feminism is the view that men and women should be treated equally. But see, that really doesn't make sense because... We've got surveys where we ask people who are feminists and who are not feminists a lot of questions. Uh, And one that really sticks out is if you ask people the question, are you a feminist? Yes. Do you think that men and women should be treated equally? Yes. About 95% will say so. But if you go and ask people who say they're not feminists, about 95% will also say they think men and women should be treated equally. So I said that really can't be the definition. It doesn't explain how people really use the word. Uh, In which case, so what would be a definition that makes sense? And I say that feminism is the view that our society generally treats men more fairly than women, which, again, I mean is a neutral definition. I think it's one that people, regardless of their view, could agree with. But in any case, after laying that out and arguing for it, then I say, all right, so this really is what you call an empirically decidable question. So let's just go through a lot of different issues and see whether it really is true that our society generally treats men more fairly than women. And... I basically wind up saying two things. One is that there are just a lot of areas where it sure seems like men look like they are treated less fairly than women. And then there's the deeper question of, well, maybe it seems unfair, but it's not really unfair because men are doing something bad to deserve the worst treatment. And most obviously, you'll have way more men in prison. That seems very unfair. They say, yeah, but maybe men commit a lot more violent crime than women. Oh, yeah. But then once you're willing to go and accept that as a justification for inequality, saying that they're actually based upon differences in behavior, you've got to see that as a two-way street. Um, my actual background is as an economist. So one of the main things that economists have been talking about for decades is the pay gap. And again, the question is, well, can we really explain the pay gap in terms of differences in actual productivity, performance, the pleasantness of jobs and things like that? And usual view among almost all economists, at least we can explain a large majority of the pay gap not through unfairness, but through different choices that men and women make in terms of their occupations and how they pursue their careers. So anyway, um, by the end of all this, what I say is not that 
men definitely are treated less fairly than women, but at least that it's complicated, which means that there's really nothing to be self-righteous about. And to be a dedicated feminist thinking about the great injustice of the world is just based really just a mistake. And then I guess I, I end with like the question of why do we even care what I think about this dad? And this is where I say that two things. So yeah, I'm concerned about, first of all, antipathy. So I do think that if you really feel like our society treats men more fairly than women, this does tend to foster an antipathy towards men, uh, which I say is not a constructive emotion in general, but especially if it's just not justified, then it's especially bad. And the same thing goes with self-pity. Uh, so I say that uh, feminism also, I think, spreads self-pity, promotes self-pity. Um, even if someone was totally justified in their self-pity, I would discourage it. If you saw someone who was stuck in a wheelchair, you probably wouldn't say, do you know what you ought to do all day? Feel self-pity, right? But if you don't really have anything to feel sorry about anyway, then it's really silly to be, spend your life in self-pity. So this is what I say is the reason why I care about it, because I care about her and I don't want her to be burdened with these emotions, which you know, are something that in general everybody feels, but to have a whole philosophy encouraging them rather than one trying to get them under control is, I think, a mistake. No, I don't completely disagree with you, not by any means, as I'm sure we'll get into. I mean, I, I, I found reading the essay, I was I was constantly putting ticks in the margin like a like a teacher, like, yep, this is yep, this is true, this is yep, yep, yep. You know, and, and I think in particular, I find your definition refreshing. All right. All right, good. I like it. <laughs> Although as I write in my review, I think I would offer a slight a slight adjustment to the definition. So I agree that I think the idea that feminism is just the idea that men and women should be equal is um, not very useful because almost everyone will sign up for it. Yeah, like you said, like yeah, like except for the most reactionary sheik from Saudi Arabia is going to agree with that. Right. Yeah. You could. Yeah. You could find a handful of people in Saudi who. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so it's really the yeah. description of a word. It's taking a word that's in common use and saying we're going to go and make it work for us, even though. It isn't really, it hasn't really signed up for this. This isn't how people actually use the word. It's also slightly question begging using a word like equality because men and women are clearly different in important ways. So it would be equal treatment, for instance, to deny both men and women leave after they have a baby, but it would have worse effects on women if one were to do that, right? Because women are, in, are on a physical level more in need of that, of that leave. So I, it's, there are all sorts of reasons why you wouldn't necessarily want to use the word equality. And also you're right that it's so wishy-washy that basically everyone's going to sign up for feminism. And despite the fact that a majority of women in the UK and I think in the US as well, don't call themselves feminists. So there's a clear contradiction there. I think it recently flipped for US women. It got, was getting close to 50. I think it is over 50. At least, you know, I, mean, I think you only ask adults anyway. Well, certainly not true in the past. I mean, one of the things which I think we'll probably get into uh, feminism has changed in its character quite a lot in recent decades as a in terms of its political priorities and so on and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that women who who used to be involved in the feminist movement were quite weird in lots of ways you know they were highly intellectual highly disagreeable um basically a bunch of women who all lived in New York right were the were the, were the key instigators of the second wave um Whereas now it's it's basically just synonymous with progressivism, and anyone who's been to university pretty much is going to be any 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 millennial woman or younger who's been to university is going to call herself a feminist. Which means I think that feminism has taken on more of the character of just kind of typical female temperament rather than the early 
the, the strangeness of the early movement. But anyway, we can we can get into that. The agreeableness factor is, I think, really important in this whole conversation. So, but your definition, I think that the idea of saying, no, actually, this is to do with fair treatment is a good one. It therefore invites us, of course, to, to treat it as, as an empirical question, like, okay, so who is treated more fairly, which is, of course, what you do. So you go through all the different sort of domains in which we might stack up men and women's differing um, differing experiences. I mean, that whole kind of society treats is obviously difficult because what exactly is society who is making these decisions and whatever, but that, yeah, I, 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 I accept the reasoning. The problem is, as you find, we then end up with a situation where we say, okay, well, I guess men win on this one and women win on win on this one. You know, men are paid more than women are, but then men go to prison more than women do, but then women are victims of rape more than men are or whatever, and it ends up being um, this slightly futile game of, uh, of, of kind of, I don't know, tennis almost, right, which doesn't actually have a clear outcome. Yeah, so the, the way that I think about it is that I think we've had about 50 years of this, these comparisons being done, but in a very biased way, where really feminists are almost the only ones that go and talk about gender gaps. I also say there's a lot of fear going on where people who disagree just are not comfortable going and saying, that doesn't sound quite right, or there's two sides to this. And one of the main things that I did is say, look, it's fine to go and say, we're going to go and do these comparisons, but at least let's do a good job of it and not try to prejudge it. Um, so yeah, I mean, in a way, I might say I'd be happier in a world where no one even thought to go and do these comparisons, and people would just be people would just be content. But given that the comparisons have been done in this very one-sided way, I'd say that at least it's not futile to go and point out it's complicated. It's not this clear-cut answer of women are mistreated and men are bullies. That honestly is what I think is was taught to me even in school in the '80s, and now seems to be quite a bit more intense than it was in the past. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a completely fair project to say, well, lots of people have been treating this like an empirical question. Why not treat it like an empirical question, but in a more balanced way? I think, yeah, I agree, that's fine. And the thing that becomes very clear if you look at the numbers is that it isn't at all obvious mm -hmm. that men are treated more fairly yeah. than women are. And there are lots of ways in which men's lives are probably a bit worse and men's, you know, whatever. And it is also, as we know, entirely dependent on things like... Uh, social status and nationality and all these other things that feed into people's experiences of the world. Like, I guess we'd all probably rather be a male Saudi sheikh, but we probably wouldn't rather be a Nepalese migrant worker building skyscrapers in Dubai or whatever, right? Um, that's all fair. I think, though, and this is what the, my main point in my review, that um, I don't think people strictly use it in that way. I do agree with you that a lot of feminists will sometimes say that this is an empirical point and will kind of muster empirical evidence to try and support the feminist cause. But I think that actually what people really, I think what people are really talking about when they talk about women being treated less fairly by society has actually got a lot more to do with social status than it does to do with any, anything um, more easily quantifiable. And I think that high status women in particular who obviously historically have been the women who've been most invested in feminist agitating are the ones who are most sensitive to the recognition and I think it's not a, I think they're not wrong in this that all else being equal it's more difficult for a woman to achieve high social status relative to a man all else being equal right we haven't yet had a female president there are very few female CEOs you know, some of this, of course, is to do with the fact that all the reasons for the pay gap, right, that the, the, the pay gap is mostly caused by women 
um, having children and therefore having to have some period out of the labor market. It's to do with women being less risk tolerant. It's to do with um, men just being outliers in every possible direction on both psychological and physical metrics for some mysterious reason that we don't quite know of, but it's clearly true in the data. Um, I agree with all of that, but I think that what um, a lot of feminists recognize is the fact that consistent across time and place, women do tend to just be a bit lower status than men. You know, we can see it in language, we can see it in religious practices, we can see it in all kinds of kind of unempirical things. But isn't this a really biased way of, of explaining the situation? It's not really that women have lower status, women have compressed status. Women are less likely to be at the very top, also less likely to be at the very bottom. Again, it's one where you can see if you're a high status woman, you could say I should have even higher status. I can understand that complaint. But again, that doesn't sound like a complaint for women in general. It's a complaint for a subset of women who are really looking to make it to the top, which is honestly a pretty small share. Um, so I'm, you know, I am puzzled uh, why you would go back. You know, so you previously were talking about how men are, you know, are overrepresented, overrepresented at the top and the bottom. So then I would say it's just not at all clear that women have you know, even slightly lower status. I'd say that it's compressed. Um, you know, so in your essay, I was actually just writing a response to it uh, before we started this. Uh, what I was saying is that it seems kind of odd to me that you would think of it this way when you know, we, we really, you know, we say, you know, like, like, for example, with motherhood, you know, women have a way where they can be actually moderately high status just by going and being a mother. Right, that really is the case. Uh, you know, so you, you you point out that women are uh, mothers not respected. What I say is mother, mothers are not respected maximally. Being a mother isn't like being a Nobel Prize winner. It's not like being an astronaut or a senator or a CEO. But on the other hand, just compared to a random person, being a mother is high status. You say, oh, you are a mother. Well, isn't that wonderful? Um, you might say, I need more. It's like, well, most people don't have more than that. Most people have less than that. Uh, so, you know, I'm I, I'm I'm still kind of puzzled by what the complaint is so i don't mean status just in terms of strictly socioeconomic status because yeah i agree with you you have more men at the very very bottom more men at the very very top i mean status in a more in a trickier way right so one example would be the fact that when women enter professions on mass so a good historical example of this would be teaching like secondary school teaching another more recent example would be medicine professions that were previously male dominated and then became female dominated during over quite a short period of time the pay and status of those professions drops now the pay we might explain on the basis of things like you know it's not a gender pay gap it's really a maternity pay gap which is yep fine yeah um the status one though i think is more tricky i think that there is I mean, so the argument that i made in the review is that i think that there's a very consistent tendency to think of women as being childlike essentially, right, for, for, it's not that women are hated, this isn't misogyny per se, I mean, misogynists exist, but there are actually very many of them, right, we're, that's, that's normally not what we're dealing with, what we're dealing with is a kind of condescension towards women, which is, does seem to be very consistently expressed across different human societies. I mean, I think you're, you know, you're, I think you are you're right about that, but again, we can flip it around and say, if there's a slight tendency to think of women as childlike. I said, there's also a tendency to think of men as beastly or savage, which is also not a wonderful thing to have to go through life with. So, 
meaning it, it's one where you can either just say a light, you know, there's just a general unfairness to life, uh, which is true. And then like when kids complain about it, normally as a parent, you want to say, okay, yes, you're correct. Uh, but it's not very constructive to dwell on it. And you just want to make the best out of the situation that you have. And you'd also add, like, if people tend to think of you in a certain way, the constructive thing is to go out of your way to not be that. Right? So if someone tends to think of a man as savage, you don't want to go and show up with your hair messed up and dirt on your clothes. You want to go and present yourself in a way that is more genteel so that people will say, okay, well, he's a man, but he's a gentleman. So he's suitable to be in, in, the, in our company here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just one where it really is the case that if you are trying to avoid confirmation bias, if you're not only looking for ways in which women have it worse, but say, well, is there some corresponding thing for men, then I think you will generally see it. There is the question, well, like, how can we balance them exactly? And yeah, I don't know any way to do that, but just to be aware of these, you know, of these, you know, of these things really are much more profitable than people tend to think. Well, I mean, I'd say that a lot of the, the sort of the best feminist activists, I think you'd acknowledge that some some feminist goals historically have been good, you know, female suffrage, for instance. I don't think that you argue against that in your say. Um, you know, the women who agitated for female suffrage were resisting that childlike characterization and were pushing for that childlike character, characterization in law to be overturned because women were not permitted to, to vote kind of on the basis of the same reasoning that we don't permit children to vote it's not because we hate children right it's not that we think that children's interests are irrelevant it's just that we think that they don't actually have the capacities to be entrusted with the vote and that's exactly what early feminists were pushing back against i mean i recall you had a, i recall you had a similar take on uh, conscription right and saying well we don't conscript women because they're also because of this childlike thing Again, you might flip it around and say well we do conscript men because we think of them as beasts they're savages their lives don't count for very much they had, maybe they even like being in a violent situation. Honestly, if that's the situation, put me under the child camp. I, I don't want to fight. I completely acknowledge that it, it goes both ways. There are advantages to being considered childlike in some situations. Right. You know, you get yes. to go on, get on a lifeboat on mm -hmm. the Titanic. Mm -hmm. um, the downside is being given less personal and legal autonomy. And again, really, if like you could either be viewed as a savage or a child, which would you prefer? It depends on the context. <laughs> here's, a, here's, a, here's a story for you. So I was homeschooling my older sons. They're 13 years old, and I take them down to the high school to take a standardized test. Uh, so I'm there to pick them up. I'm sitting in the lunchroom, and then one of the teachers comes up to me and says, uh, Sir, I received a report that there was a man sitting here. And I, I just couldn't help but crack up and just said, well, guilty as charged. But the reason why that anyone had called me over was clearly because I was a man. If there was some adult woman sitting there, I would say, oh, so somebody's mom for some purpose or other, totally beyond reproach. But just by being a man, I was considered threatening. Now, I could have taken great umbrage and raised a stick about it, but I said, right, well, I can kind of see why it's a little odd to have a man sitting here. And I just tried to respond in a polite manner and I talked my way out of the situation. I could have been really upset about it but, you know this is the kind of burden that men go under in life where there's just a kind of suspicion it's like who are you why are you here what is it you might do evil <laughs> and it's like i'm not doing anything but uh, it's you know, it's so something to be aware of just putting yourself in the other person's shoes one of the things that really struck me when reading your book is when you're talking about this the feeling that women have of disgust when there's a guy hitting on them that they don't like 
And I was like, yeah, okay. I've never had that experience. <laughs> I mean, I was aware that women did have this experience, but the way you described it was very vivid and really stuck with me. Although it's also one when, when I was reading it, I was saying, have you ever thought about the experience of being an unattractive guy who's lonely? And it's like, well, I can't just not talk to women or I'll stay lonely forever. On the other hand, there is this problem where if I talk to them, they may feel like I am a disgusting person who has no business even thinking that I have a right to do so. So it's just one where I think there's, you know, there's a lot of value to be gained in being able to put yourself in the shoes of someone that you're not. Uh, same time, you know, it doesn't mean that you forget who you are, but you know, just to go and balance those things out and realize that both are true simultaneously really does help in understanding what it is like to be a human being. Mm, yeah, I take that point. I think that the uh, there's this interesting balance, right, between the women are wonderful bias, which I'm sure you know is cognitive bias, where people will tend to give preference to women in certain situations. So you ask, do you want to save the life of a drowning stranger? People will be more likely to save the life of the woman than the man and so on. Um, I think it comes back to this childlike thing in the same way that we would save the life of a child over the life of an adult. I think it's that same kind of simultaneous condescension and privilege that women experience as a consequence of being child adjacent in terms of status. I mean, it is, it is a very striking thought experiment because often we like when I've talked to my wife about this, she says, oh, well, it's just because women can have kids. I mean, okay, so how about if it's an 80 year old woman, childless, and there's an 18 year old guy? People still want to save the eight-year-old woman over the eighteen-year-old guy, and he's got his whole life ahead of him. She's only has a few years left. She doesn't, you know, even if she doesn't have any kids or anything else, there's still a sense of she's a higher form of life, more entitled to be saved. I actually even had a guy who said, "I just believe that women are more are more valuable people," and I was just pressing him like, "All of them? Like, why?" <laughs> yeah, I guess it probably comes down to the vulnerability, the feeling that you should be. I mean, women are clearly physically vulnerable relative to men. So maybe people conclude from that that women should be given. I know it's, it's interesting. I think there's a pretty good evolutionary story here, which is that in the ancestral environment, I mean, first of all, of course, there is just directly saving women is going to go and, and help and help your genes, but just because they are involved in childcare. But, um, but more specifically, if you were a guy who doesn't seem like he wants to save women, women aren't going to like you. If you're a guy who says, you know, me, man, me, barely important. Me, I don't care what happened to women. If you're the caveman saying that, I think the cave women are going to say, buzz off, sure. We don't want so there's so strong desire for people, especially men, to sometimes called white knighting, just to go and say, like, I just really care about the well-being of women. I can't stand to see female suffering. And then basic evolution says that if it is advantageous to be perceived as something, we tend to actually become the very thing that we want to be perceived as because that's a, a good way of being perceived that way is to sincerely do that. Yes. I mean, you could also tell an evolutionary story where women just have the, you know, the big, the big expensive gametes, right? So that women are just more, um, more valuable than men are to the community in terms of reproduction. That probably, there's probably some truth to that as well. And it is, you know, it, it, I, I also take the point that some anti-feminists um, have, have made many times that men are often seen as more expendable, for instance, for instance in war, um, sent down the salt mines, whatever kind of horrible ends many men have met historically. And we know from the genetic data that a lot of men didn't reproduce. Sure. Um, 
because they because they died or were restricted from 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 mating or whatever so yeah or just, or just women 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 didn't like them <laughs> that's a big reason not to reproduce women didn't like you yeah yeah oh and that's jordan peterson's point to uh incels right is to say well if you can't persuade women to mate with you then that's kind of your problem right it's one of the reasons why he's actually not really considered to be a sort of hero of the incels but um yes yeah, so but i i also acknowledge the fact that that's very painful and that we probably do have a tendency because of the women are wonderful bias to prize female suffering over male suffering. I'd say though at the same time that there's also a tendency among women to be so agreeable as to fail to assert their own interests. And this is a thing that I was trying to identify in my book is the fact that you have this enormous number of young women in particular who, you know, have very, to put it in crude economic terms, very high sexual market value who could be very assertive in the sexual marketplace and aren't being actually and are putting up with with sex that makes them feel distressed, are allowing themselves to be abused, manipulated, etc., under the guise of say BDSM or, or or by these playboys who don't care about them. You know, that women are being sold this well sold is maybe the wrong verb but women have accepted this narrative of the sexual revolution that it was all to the service of of women's liberation when in fact what seems to be happening is that women are having really miserable sexual experiences and just kind of accepting it for some reason so i think that i think those two things are in place simultaneously there's that agreeableness factor which i think does push women to sometimes be quite self-abnegating but at the same time there's the women are wonderful thesis so this is sort of part of your book where on the one hand you're saying all the things you're saying are true, but at the same time, there's a bunch of other things that offset those so that the big picture is really different. So, you know, like, so like we're both really interested in human personality and personality differences. So you're right. One of the big differences in personality in men and women is agreeableness. But the other one is neuroticism. Women on almost every measure are more neurotic than men. So like this, the general conclusion of women not asserting themselves, I have to say, out of all the things you say in your book, that's the one that is completely absent from my experience. I see women asserting themselves consistently uh, again, with this combination of agreeableness and neuroticism, but it's not one that just leads them to go and go along with whatever they hear. And, you know, and even in the case you're talking about of women going along with sex they don't like, it's not like they're going and hooking up with unattractive guys or losers. Uh, it's more along the lines of there's a certain kind of very highly attractive guy who doesn't treat them very well. This, this fits in with general evolutionary thinking. It's not that women are just saying, okay, well, I possibly, couldn't possibly turn anyone down for a date. It's more of they have, they put, you know, women put a high value on your very high status guys who then don't treat them very well. Uh, but again, this is one where, you know, you know, the review of, my review of your book is called Married to Market, where I was saying, you know, instead of just saying, you know, don't be so agreeable, uh, and just going along with everything, which I think is not true. I don't see women going along with much of anything, actually. <laughs> I see women having very firm views about what they like and don't like, which is totally fine. Who doesn't? Uh, but, I mean, rather what I see is, you know, like you said, you've got women of very high market value who just go and spend it unwisely. So if you say, yes, well, like, why is it you go and, like, you've got your, your pick of a, a lot of different guys. Why do you go with a guy who's really handsome and tall and funny, but who clearly doesn't really like you that much, who's just not that into you, why not go and take that market value to go and get somebody that's a better long-term person? 
So this is where I say that, you know, the problem is not the marketplace at all. The problem is that if the consumer goes for short run gratification, then that's what the market gives them. If you've got go for long run gratification, the market will give you that. Um, so, yeah, but you know, like I said, like, I think the, the thing that you said that resonated with me not at all was the idea of women just going along with things. I mean, I, I'm just I just really racked my brain for any time I've, I've actually seen that. I just see women as being very opinionated, certainly in dating. The idea that a woman will just go out with anybody, I don't know any women like that at all. I've never even met a person who told me of such a person. It's not that women will go out with anyone. It's more that, I mean, I get a lot of women emailing me and I spoke to during the writing of the book and so on, who will talk about this feeling of having semi-unwanted sex out of a sense of obligation. So it's partly that feeling of you go on a date with a guy and you feel kind of like you have to put out because that's considered normal. That's definitely a phenomenon post-pill because it used to be, of course, that with the pill, when you didn't have access to contraception, you could just say, well, we can't have sex because I don't want to get pregnant. And now that, that, now that isn't available anymore. What if, what if they thought he was a loser? Do you hear women saying, I have sex with total losers? Well, they wouldn't go on a date with him. So, <laughs> yeah, so this is more to do with women, I think, having... Un kind of unwanted I, I, I'm not calling it rape right but like kind of unwanted sexual experiences mm -hmm. with men that actually in other circumstances they might want to marry mm -hmm. and I think part of what's going on here and running with the economic uh, model again is that these consumers don't have full knowledge of the product yeah well who does I'd, I'd say more so now than in the past because we tell lies about the differences between men and women all the time on a cultural level. So a lot of young women in particular don't have very good understanding of male sexuality and don't know, for instance, that men have the twin track of women they want to marry and women they want to have casual sex with and, the, and that that threshold for wanting to have casual sex with the woman is quite low. And so they will think that, you know, this man who I, in other circumstances might want to marry the fact that he's showing sexual interest in me is perhaps a sign that we're en route to that etc cetera, etc cetera. and so we'll basically go along with sexual encounters that leave them feeling really wretched because they don't actually have full understanding of what's motivating the man in question i think that that's definitely a phenomenon which is very widespread although you could also think about that as being related to female neuroticism right so you could think if you have a neurotic personality you could have an experience that was overall pretty good but you still could interpret it in a negative way so it's another way of thinking about it. I suppose so. But then we, we still might want to, given that female neuroticism is kind of like a fixed thing, there's a, it's something we have to negotiate as a culture, we might still say that as a sexual culture which discourages people from making those kind of choices is, would be to women's benefit and that it would avoid their negative feelings. Right, although also you know, like another good point you made in your book was how just because something is your preference doesn't mean you need to act on it. and. I think you mentioned virtue ethics in one of your interviews. So the idea of recognizing that you're not the person that you really want to be and that you can work on it. And as Aristotle teaches us, basic common sense, the way that you become a different person is just by acting as the person that you wish to be would act and gradually turning that into a habit. So this is, you know, so for example, just like owning your own choices and just saying, look, I'm not going to go and blame other people for something that I did. If I didn't like it, then I need to change. I need to find a different person or be with a different kind of person. Uh, one thing that really uh, stuck with me in, in what you were, you know, I think this is one of your interviews. Uh, you said that you were really happy when you get emails from female readers saying, I felt like I was going to, I had to have sex with a guy and I didn't want to. And I remembered your book and then I didn't. And I can see some sense of satisfaction of that. But honestly, if I were you, 
this, what would give me satisfaction is by reading your book, I found true love. Not just I didn't do something that I didn't like, but that I did something that I, that I found something that was really great. And you know, the general point of like you got to kiss a lot of frogs and the way that you get, get good experiences is by trying things out that you don't know if they're going to be good or not. And then eventually maybe things work out for you. Um, I mean, especially like when I'm talking to men, uh, you know, young, young men. So I basically know zero of the young men that you write about who have a lot of confidence and date lots of women, maybe two or three in my whole life. I know vast numbers of guys who are scared even to talk to women, right? And with them, I always say, look, okay, I understand you're scared, you're nervous, you feel rejection. You just got to go and get over that and try and accept that it's going to be really painful at first, but otherwise you're just going to be alone your whole life. Right? So you know, for a guy like that, I would be like to me, like, like if I'm giving advice to him like that, if they said I found someone who's really great, like, great, that's what I was going for. I'm not just trying to spare you some bad experiences. In fact, I'm trying to get you to face a lot of bad experiences because it's part of the experimentation of getting to a good result. But then I don't think a culture of casual sex is a benefit to either of those populations that we're talking about, because I don't think that the young men who are struggling to even speak to women benefit from you know i i think that the the kind of hypergamy model is roughly right at least in the casual sex market where you have the very high status men attracting a lot of partners and then there are kind of no partners left for the low status men and the women who end up in these informal harems are not very happy with the situation either it seems to me that the only people who are really benefiting from that structure are the high status men so it would be i'd say it would be the interest of of some of these shy young men to actually have a more traditional monogamous sexual culture so what i say is that casual sex is on a continuum so i think in your book you met you you were giving the advice of wait months that's the kind of thing where if i were talking to a guy who's dating a girl and she hasn't had sex with him for a few months i'd say well maybe she just doesn't really like you so it's it's one where it's actually again i think it's a lot more complicated and there is there are multiple dangers on both sides there's the danger of of going and becoming part of part of the harem, what that you didn't really want to. There's the danger of being so prudish that people just think that you don't like them and when they when they say, all right, well like this isn't working for me. Uh, so it, you know it's it's one where, you know, often like I mean this this uh you know, this may be something eccentric to me, but I, I I'm a big believer in just being very direct with people and the older I get, the more direct I think people should be. So, like, you know, like if something like, so I've been planning on writing. So someone asked me to go and write a piece about how to find a good wife. So I was going to call that "She's the One," and I said, "All right, how would you write?" And then I was actually asked how to how to get a good husband. He's the one. So, like, a lot of my advice to women would actually just be rather than just saying there's a three month rule, just say, "Look, um, I want to like, I want to try being your girlfriend. We're all like, like we're going to date each other exclusively, and we'll see what happens." Right. And the number of guys that I think would actually accept that deal is, is, is shockingly high, especially if you go and target a guy that is otherwise really good, but seems to be shy and awkward and too scared to go and talk, uh, which is, again, I think most men, actually. So if you're just going to profile, I'm looking for a guy who's smart, who's accomplished, who's well-spoken, you know, he's good looking, comes from a good family, like we share common interests, you know, make up this list, but he's never asked me anything. He's never, he's never approached me. I would say, all right, well, why don't you just go to that guy and just say, hey, I like you. I think you've got a lot of potential. What do you think about me being your girlfriend? Like, I mean, the number of guys that I think would just be so astounded by that, but 
You might think that they'd be turned off by this and it's too aggressive. Maybe it would be. I, I would still say try it and tell me what happens. I'm really curious. I think it would work. I think you're probably right that women could probably get away with being more direct with men than they currently are generally. But that but that women might be more alarmed by men being even more direct. I mean that's that's another sex difference, right? Partly partly linked to agreeableness. It just yeah. I mean I've often thought that the way that um what we call man's mansplaining is actually just how men speak. <laughs> it's how men speak to one another as well. It's just it's just called being like assertive in conversation, basically. But because women don't tend to speak to one another like that when the sexes collide in the workplace, then that's how it manifests. Yeah, I mean, I mean I've often said, told told women if you think that men speak cruelly and rudely, just just think about how they speak when there's no women around. Men are on better behavior when there are women around. So if you like, they are changing the behavior in the desire in the direction you desire, it's just that they haven't changed as much as you like. One of the wonders of the podcast era is that we can now we can now eavesdrop on entirely male conversations. And yes, it turns out that men just like mansplain at each other all the time. Yeah, or, or you could have just listened to rap, rap, rap listened to Eminem twenty years ago. <laughs> on this point about the, the the three month waiting rule, I mean, the reason that that might interpret, I agree that there's a risk that a partner, if you've if you've not sort of been direct and just explaining your reasoning to someone, um, a reason why a partner might think, oh well, I guess she's just doesn't like me very much I might I might as well give up is because it's within the context of a casual sex culture where having sex early on is considered normal waiting a few months in a in the 1950s sexual culture would not be considered abnormal at all because it was still fairly common for women in particular not to have sex until marriage I mean do we, do we really have data on that actually do we really know what was going on I can't recall it off the top of my head but yeah a surprising proportion of women until relatively recently were virgins on their wedding day you know, yes, this brings me back to something else that you were saying that where, you know, you, know, you do know this, uh, but you, like, it's not even true that casual sex is on the rise. It seems like actually casual sex is falling. So like, the, I, I, like, are we in a casual sex culture or are we in one where there is a subculture or a sub subculture that's having a lot of casual sex? And then the majority of people are actually lonely and isolated and barely interacting with each other. Isn't that more of what's really going on? I think there are two things going on. I think that there is a casual sex subculture, um, although I, I'm sure that that accounts for only a small portion of the population. I think as well that there is a... It's not true to say that people are having less casual sex. It is true to say that they're having less sex overall. And that's because actually the people who have the most sex are people who are married, <laughs> right? Like contrary to sort of long-running jokes, right? So um, when people are having are getting married much later, if at all, and having committed relationships later, if at all, they're having less sex overall. So I think that what you can now expect, you know, as a Zuma millennial or whatever, is to have more partners but less sex less instances of having sex over your lifetime. So I think that that's what produces the data, which shows us that there is a sex recession combined with, uh, I would say, a culture of casual sex. Is, is it even true that people are having more partners? I mean, isn't there, like, so I'm trying to remember the numbers, but I think that the share of people just never have any partners at all has gone up. I mean, most obviously for men. Well, that's because I think there's enormous inequality among men now. So that, so yes, I think there's a, there's a largest proportion of men now who don't have, sex at all and then you've got sort of the the playboys at the top who are hoarding it right but, but, so, but even 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 out of women isn't there like a substantially rising share of just, you know, like even young women who are lonely and basically 
don't have anyone. Well, there's the femme cell phenomenon, which you might have heard of, but generally the thing that's driving the femme cell phenomenon is a bit different. Normally femme cells, so-called, um, listeners can guess what that means, right? Female insults, um, are able to uh, have access to casual sex. What they don't have access to is romantic relationships. Um, so they have a slightly different problem, which is also painful. I mean, I think these are symmetrical forms of pain for men and women, you know, um, women gatekeep sex, men gatekeep commitment is generally the pattern. Right. So, you know, like a lot of my reaction to your book was it was just too negative and it's sort of amplifying natural human fear and loneliness. I mean, like, like I, I would really send almost the opposite message of just be hopeful and try things and improve yourself and, and be, you know, just be mindful of what it is that you're looking for and try to go and get that and assert yourself. At the same time, just going and especially telling women like like men, men are bad and, and are pretty jerky. You know, like there's, you know, even if true, is it really a constructive thing to say? I would say, you know, like, you know, I just think like what I would tell my daughter. So yes, like there's a lot of jerky guys, especially young guys. There's a lot, a lot of them are just sort of oblivious and insensitive. I say, but here's the good news. There's a bunch that are aren't, and here are the ways that you can profile them, and here's the way that here are the ways that you can get your their attention. Most obviously, just by going and saying hi. Can I have your attention? <laughs> I don't know. I just see that as as a, as a much more productive way of going forward. I mean, like, you know, like, like, let me, I put it this way. So, which worries you more, loneliness or sex that people don't like having? I would, I would say the loneliness is as much is much more worrisome because the sex that people don't like having, I still say they're on the path to finding something good. Whereas people that are just lonely and isolated, they're stuck. At, they're basically stuck. They're not. They're not moving forward. Nothing's good will happen. I think this comes down to the male and female outlook being quite different sometimes. Because going back to the evolutionary biology point, you know, one of the points that's made in uh, Thornhill and Palmer's book, Natural History of Rape, which I draw on quite heavily in one of my chapters, um, is that women, particularly young women, um, have suffer enormously from from unwanted from rape, from unwanted sex. Um, and actually, one of the things they know is that it correlates with being more fertile. Um, women suffer more psychologically when they've been raped at a point in their lives where that's more likely to result in unwanted pregnancy. And so they reason that this suggests that it's an adaptive response, right? Um, I, and, I, and, I, and that's the sort of response that can be hard to, hard to directly empathize with from the male perspective. And I completely agree that women have the opposite thing, that women struggle to, struggle to even acknowledge the existence of men who suffer as a result of constant rejection so I, I think we I think we have a to some extent an issue of mutual miscomprehension and part of what's going on I think in, with our sort of like miscomprehension on a personal level is that I have quite a typical female temperament and you have quite a typical male temperament and so to some extent we're coming at this just with slightly different different eyes the only way in which I don't have typical female temperament is that I'm unusually contrarian for a woman but apart from that, yeah, I agree with you about the neuroticism point, for instance. Yeah, definitely. I mean, but but also, there are also costs to being a sunny optimist all the time. I mean, ob obviously there are, although I would just say that optimists, optimism is generally self-justifying, especially if you think of it as an attitude rather than prediction. So like, in a sense, I'm not an optimist. Like, there's a lot of things where I say, yeah, they're bad, they're not going to change, things are kind of hopeless. But then I say, however... I'm going to still get out of bed today and have a great day, despite all these bad things in the world. And that, I think, is much more constructive. I mean, but even from your own point of view, if you were going and talking to a 
young woman and she says, look, I don't, I'm just too afraid to date anyone because I'm worried about getting raped. Wouldn't you say, all right, like, I agree that would be a terrible outcome, but it's unlikely. And there's some things you can do to reduce the risk a lot. And do you really want to be alone for your whole life just because something bad could happen? Isn't that what you would tell them? Yeah, that's what I do say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, this was one of the criticisms that I got from some quarters on the book that they said, hang on, she, she, you know, she talks at length about all the various horrors related to porn and sexual violence and everything. And then she gets to the last chapter and says, you should, you should go marry a man. And some critics said, why not? Why not lesbian separatism? Mm. You know, <laughs> and you know, in a sense, like lesbian separatism is like, a, it's like a defensible position, but I don't think it's one that actually is going to make most people happy. And it's also one that ensures the end of the human species within a century. So like, again, that last chapter is interesting because it didn't seem like you really had a lot good to say about men, but it seems like there's a lot good that you could say if you really wanted to. I mean, like, like in terms of the pep talk, if there is a, if you were talking to a young woman who's all alone, who says, look, like you convinced me men are such jerks, all they think about is sex, they don't really care about me, they're polygamous, blah, blah, blah. And, and then you say, and then you say, okay, well, here's some good things about men. What would you say? Men are brave, braver than women, physically braver than women. Men are more risk tolerant, you know, and that there are really good outcomes with that. Men are productive. I mean, I mean, but, but, but is that is that going to is that going to make a woman ex- interested in men? To say like they're really risk tolerant. Okay, now I want to date one. <laughs> <laughs> I think her heterosexuality is what's going to make her interested in men. <laughs> I don't think you need to persuade young people to be sexually attracted to one another. What you need to persuade them to do is to make um, make wise decisions in relation to their mating choices. You know, like, 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 here's what I often tell young guys that I'm talking to, and I say, look, you know what your number one problem is? You think about looks too much. Looks are not are actually not that important. They are not they are not the basis for being really happy in in, in the long run or even the medium run. If you marry someone who is an incredibly beautiful woman with a terrible personality, you will be completely miserable. You'll want to kill yourself. So don't do that. And I said, like, just turn down the, the weight that you put on looks a lot and focus on personality. And then it's like, oh, so what personality should I be looking for? So like, these are some personality traits that I would tell a guy to be looking for a woman. Admiration. You want a woman who admires you. Well, and and like like almost any guy that I tell this to, yeah, yeah, that would be fantastic if I can find a woman that admires me. But how can I make that happen? How can I win a woman's admiration? And and yes, uh, I felt like that, like your book was making my job harder, Louise. <laughs> but then equally, don't we have to be truthful? And isn't it better to say, well, look, you know, that it's clearly the case that men are on average more sexually violent. I mean, one of the things I do also say is that it, you know, it really is the case that like hashtag not all men is true. And that the idea that all men are, you know, a, a big audience that I'm speaking to in the book, you know, is not just libertarian economists, it's also <laughs> feminists who are much more averse to men than I am and who, you know, have really imbibed the idea, for instance, that all men are are, are potential sexual abusers. And I say, well, no, they're actually not. So that, that I think that, but I also think that we have to be completely honest about the data and say, look, there is a dark side to the male soul. There's also a dark side to the female soul, which is the nature of being a human being. Oh, but like, how about the bright side of the male soul? Uh, like, you know, men like accomplishing things. Men come up with bold new ideas and do them, right? And men make them happen. Uh, so, you know, I mean, like, like, just to say, like, like, you know, like, if you just look at the share of big companies that were started by a group of all, uh, by either one man or an all male group. And you could either look at this and say, see how unfair the world is. Or you could say, look, 
is capturing something very cool about guys, something where they just get ideas in their heads, most of which don't work out, but almost all the progress in the world comes from this this willingness to explore new ideas and try them and just to get, yes, and not just being risk tolerant, but being willing to go and bet on your ideas. So, and again, to say, like, can't women do that too? They can, but to say, like, this is, this is, this is a attractive trait that is more pronounced in among men than women and tell women this is something to be looking for. Um, so I guess like on, like, like when, when my daughter's allowed to date, my, my wife is just sort of sad, like, you know, there's like a hard rule. And I don't know, I don't know, it's like 16 or maybe it's 18. And I always said, well, let me meet this guy. Well, what's his deal? Well, let's find out what, what he's like before we decide, before we judge anything. And, that, and that's where it's just like, like just be open to the possibility that another person is just awesome and exciting. And again, that's something that I, I hope you feel, but it didn't really come out in your book. Or, or we disagree. Well, I try and have a sunny disposition, but I think I think it's that temperament thing, isn't it? <laughs> I say that I also have, you know, I have a I have a wonderful husband. I have a beloved son. I am, you know, I am. I really do have a much more positive orientation towards men than you might assume from reading the book. Um, but I mean, but then I also I'm trying to. <sighs> You know, my my ideal reader, right, for this book is the young woman who has been raised on sex-positive feminism and on biological denialism. I mean, combined, it's this strange thing, right, where sex-positive feminism on the one hand is often actually very man-hating, very negative about men, but then encourages women to be alone with strange men for instance, which seems to me like an obvious contradiction. So I'm trying, mm-hmm. so I'm speaking to the woman who's been raised on that kind of, that kind of political cocktail um, and trying to say, well, look, the, the, the things that your grandmother thought actually were not bad and stupid. She probably had a point. Yeah. So obviously you're much more enmeshed in feminism in as many forms than I am. I freely admit this. You've got a lot more experience than me, but I have talked to a lot of people who've been through sexual harassment training and like freshman college training. And to me, like it just sounds extremely sex negative. And it looks like this is the main thing, the main lesson that you're getting of like if you thought you were having consensual sex, you quite possibly weren't. This long list of caveats about when is it okay, all the way down to like was there an imbalance in status? Which again, knowing evolutionary psychology, one of the main things that women are looking for is, is a higher status guy. And then to say like that makes things suspect, not that it makes them absolutely forbidden, but rather it makes it so that if things don't work after the fact, then you can go and point fingers and say that the man was an abuser or took advantage. Uh, but even at the level of just, you know, so like, you know, there's the first, there's the standard of affirmative consent, which really is so contrary to human nature, almost nobody does it, even if they philosophically think they should, because people are used to reading hidden signs. But then there's the really bizarre one of what I call stepwise affirmative consent, where every single escalation requires a further proof. Uh, I have a piece where I call this Zeno's chastity belt, because in principle, you could subdivide steps infinitely, and then nothing could ever happen. And then, and then, right, and then you know, finally there, uh, there, there's this yeah. uh, difference in status. You put all this together, and it's like if any, if all of these things at least make consent suspect, then it seems like a really very sex-negative view, rather than one of saying, well, like, hmm. meaning I think it does seem like you're aware that in a sense the sex positivity is very mixed. It's not true sex positivity where they're actually like, yes, this is great. I think it's a. I think it's the the real world consequences of attempting sex positivity and recognizing how it generally turns out. So you end up with this slightly perverse 
combination. I completely agree of saying an age gap of five years is problematic or whatever, right? But also that um, you should like meet a man off the internet who says he's interested in strangling and like go home with him and hope for the best, which does seem like very odd. I think it's because the sex positive ideology is is basically unworkable. Um, the idea that you can just get rid of all of the social norms and whatever that we used to have in place to regulate heterosexuality and it'll work out. Do you really personally know feminists who will say it's a good idea to go home with a guy who's into strangling from the internet? Do you know, do you actually know people like that? Yes, I quote them in the book. It's one thing to, to write something in a book. It's another thing where they tell you to your face, yes, I think it's a good idea to go home with a, with a strangler. You know people like that? One, you will read this in agony aunt columns, right? Up and down the land, something along these lines. This, 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 it, this directive to prioritize your sexual freedom and teach men not to rape, right? That combination is you, you can, you can, you can read that. Whether or not I agree, the agony, agony aunt columnists are actually doing this themselves. That is what they will advise, and it's what our, our teenage daughters are potentially going to be reading. But I have also heard personally from from young women who said that they. They did take risks with things like one night stands or like going onto fetish websites to find partners or whatever, and that they just didn't really know what they were getting into, partly because they didn't know quite how extreme differences in physical strength are between men and women. And what about all of the ones that basically are so scared to do anything, even though with reasonable precautions, the risks are low? So I it clearly I completely agree it is clearly the case that young men and women are struggling to form relationships with one another and that something has broken down. I think that there is a I think that mating is an enormously difficult coordination problem and it seems that if we just leave people young people to it they don't they don't manage it very well. I don't agree that the cause of this crisis, if we want to call it a crisis, the cause of this problem is that is me too, you know, is is men and women being sort of af- too afraid of either being sexually abused or being accused of sexual abuse. I think it probably has more to do with our old courtship systems having broken down and young men and w- women finding it difficult to find appropriate partners and not really being helped by the culture. I mean, things like dating apps clearly are actually not really designed to help you find a spouse. Dating apps are designed to keep you on the dating apps is, is, is how they seem to actually operate. This is all after my time, but I've talked to a lot of people that have used them as well as people that have found spouses on dating apps. The main thing they tell me, which makes a lot of sense, is that dating apps differ very widely in what exactly they're for. Uh, so like, I mean, I had a friend who got married over a dating app and I believe it was called The League. And, and actually, basically, there's a big upfront payment. And then it is designed, actually, to get you off the app. And especially, there's a lot of limits on how much you can use in the app because they're trying to go and, and clearly, incredibly show their customers that this is not just for people that are into casual relationships. So I think you're only able to send like three messages per day. And you know this when you're on the app. You're paying in part for one where you don't have a lot of access to the app because then when you do use it, people know that it's at least sending a stronger signal. So again, I would say this is not something where it's like the apps are the problem or the market's the problem. It always comes back to the preferences of consumers. There is a way of using this in such a way that it would give you what you want. And usually, actually, the options are there. It's just that the ones that you would think that people should be using, they often aren't. I mean, I think a lot of this is just the folly of youth and young people don't know what's going on. Right? Uh, regardless of gender, young yeah, people, young I, people, I, young I, people yeah, we agree. We agree. <laughs> yes. 
Um, so I'm not I'm not someone that, that gives people advice that is unwanted. But when people ask me, I'll say, yeah, okay, here's the problem. Like you're young and you're confused about what's going on, and here's the real story, and here's what I advise you to do. You can take my advice or leave it. Um, <laughs> um, normally, like like to be totally honest, the, the people that will actually that I talk to in real life are 95 percent male. So I'm giving advice to men. Uh, if women ask me, actually, so I was actually interviewed for a Polish uh, teenage girls TikTok channel in Poland. So then I was asked, like, what's your advice for how to find a good man? And I was ready. So, <laughs> you know, again, like a lot of my advice was like, figure out what your top priorities are and then be flexible about everything else. So if your top priority is to find a reliable long run partner who is a nice guy, who is going to be self-supporting, who's a suitable father. All right, so those those are your priorities. Great. In that case, you know, be flexible about everything else if you want this to happen. And there's so many ways to be flexible about this. Be flexible. Does he have to be a college graduate? Knowing if he meets the other things, why should he have to be a college graduate? Does he have to be six feet tall? Does he have to be really good looking? Does he have to be within one one year of your age? Uh, so the, you know, these are all things that I would say are really good to think about. And ones where when you really say, look, it's my job to go and solve my own problem. And to and if things start working out for me, it's probably because I'm just not doing the right thing. You know, of course, there's a lot of luck too. I mean, again, like the only caveat I have to if things aren't working out for you, or not doing the right thing, is just to remember that when there is a low probability built in of success, you have to just accept that there's going to be a lot of failure, and that's not a reason to stop doing it. Like you know, like, like as a professor, sometimes I once in a while I've had a co-author where we send an article and we get rejected, and the uh, co-author says, "Oh, well, we have to go and change the article." And I'm like, "No, we have to submit it again." We don't have to change it <laughs> it's because we there's like a 5% acceptance rate. So it doesn't show we've done anything wrong. Let's just try a bunch of times and then eventually it'll work out. That's, I think, pretty good advice. I mean, of course, if like what you're doing is so risky that you're going to end up in a hospital, then obviously it's a different story. Uh, but it's one where you still have to say, all right, so like, what are the odds of it really being that bad? What are the things that I can do to reduce the risk of that? I mean, obviously, it's old-fashioned things like dating within social circles that are personally known to you, that's going to be safer because minimum, you know, person, you know, you know who the person is. The funny thing is we spent the last hour arguing about dating. Um, and I think <laughs> that actually we pretty much agree in terms of like, what's the best model. Mm -hmm. I think we basically agree that it's mm -hmm. like roughly traditional sexual culture with some sort of liberal tolerance built in is probably the best way to go. I guess the main difference I would just say is that we need a lot more positivity. A lot more positivity, a lot more focusing on what could go right rather than what could go wrong. I mean, I think it seems to me that you talk to people who have you know, real problems. And it's, on the one hand, it's great to help people like that. On the other hand, to realize it's a small part of the population and that the, the problem of going on to fetish websites and ending up in a hospital, that's a really rare problem. The problem of just being alone for years, that's a much more common problem. So yeah, I say that, like that, you know, that second problem is one that is more important to solve. And, you know, of course, in both cases, I'd say that it's a similar answer, which is figure out what you want, figure out your priorities, and then focus on those and be direct with people. Um, you know, realizing, of course, that your evolutionary wiring may be leading you in the wrong direction. Like I said, I think, I think like all young people just tend to put too much focus on looks. Right, so there's that. Uh, but then, you know, that's just a negative thing. Don't put so much focus on that. But what should you focus on? I mean, personality, shared interests, shared values. These are things that are really conducive to uh, to a relationship. Of course, one of those shared values is, do you want to have kids? And if so, how many kids do you want to have? Um, 
that's something that I would say is you know, is really a top priority. Like to date someone for a couple of years, say, oh, you don't want kids. Oh, whoops. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, that probably should have been discussed by like the third date. <laughs> Maybe the first date, actually, if you, don't, if you don't sound too crazy when you say it. I don't know if you've seen, Brian, but we're organizing a, um, a matchmaking event for uh, listeners to the podcast. And really? Yeah, because of this thing of wanting to get people meeting offline. And I get so many people emailing me saying, how do I find a partner not using um dating apps and so we thought why not why not just get them in a room together so we're, we're doing this in um a couple of weeks from the day that we're recording now and uh, one of the questions that we asked we asked we've asked some kind of filtering questions just to make sure we don't um admit any lunatics and also to try and get a good balance of sex rates sex ratio and all the stuff and one of the questions we ask is do you want to have children how many how soon because that i agree with you seems like one of the one of the things you should be asking on a first date pretty much yeah perhaps a little too crazy but it's third date anyway Third date. Something you should know from the get-go. Yeah, Yeah, it depends upon your age. If you're in your 30s, then I think that probably should be asking on the first dates. Um, With a sense of humor. Humor can diffuse a lot of of what would otherwise appear to be insanity. So... In the extended bit, which I'm going to go to in a moment, I want to talk about your book, Selfish Reasons for Having Kids, because I am, as you know, working on a book called The Case for Having Kids. So again, we are are aligned. Um, But before we get to that, I want to, so one of the questions that I kept thinking of when I was reading Don't Be a Feminist is you, you basically accept feminist activism up until, I don't know, maybe the second wave, you know, like, like I think you talk about Saudi Arabia in particular being bad for women. You are pro female suffrage and all this kind of stuff. What is it that basically makes you think that feminism was fine up until a certain historical point and then overreached? Like, where's that balancing point where you think that it became something that you would advise your daughter against? I believe I never actually talked about women's suffrage. I know there's some people that know my work well who will be getting on my case over this. What I'd say is that it's an empirical issue, not that much work has been done on it. My view is actually that whatever voting rule gets you the best policies is the best voting rule. Is um, so I mean, like in terms of you know, when I think that feminism turned bad. I think the like, you know, just, I mean, I'm not, I don't know that much about the like what like the like your 19th century feminists were saying. You know, I'm much more familiar with modern feminism as to whether they were actually negative about men or not. I'm not clear on that. So as to when, like you know, again, like like basically, like you know, I would I would really say it's more like this. As long as all you're saying is you know, women you know, like, you know, try to live up to your potential, enjoy life to the fullest, then I don't care what you, then I don't care what you wave you're in. But if, on the other hand, you're going and saying we're being treated very, well, we're being treated terribly compared to men, you know, even in the period of women's suffrage, guess what? This is also the period of conscription. I would say that it was totally morally blind to be more worried about suffrage than conscription. Which again, I think, consider conscription a crime against humanity. Whereas women's suffrage is like, all right, well, maybe it's not fair, but is it really mess up your life that much that you don't get to vote? Like I said, I would, I would much prefer to never vote and be assured of never, of never being conscripted. I mean, so one example which does actually touch on the military connection there of a 19th century feminist who I think is great, and I write about briefly in the book, is an English woman called Josephine Butler, who was also Christian, and she campaigned against um the british army having military brothels 
um, specifically in India, often contained underage girls or who, girls who would be underage in, in the English jurisdiction, but not so in India and so on. Um, you know, to my mind, that's just, I, I, to me, that is sort of the purest essence of feminism in the sense that it is having, um, forming allegiances between women across class, race, nationality, etc., in opposition to male sexual aggression, right? And that's I, I that is a common theme. You know, to be fair, we've talked we've we've spoken a lot about things like the the pay gap. You know, that obviously, which is a very prominent feature of second wave feminism and beyond. But things like the founding of rape crisis centres, the founding of domestic violence centres, these are all things that also were done by second wave feminists, which I don't think actually, again, if you put the question to the public, you know, do you believe that men and women should be equal? Everyone says yes. Do you believe that, you know, domestic violence shelters should exist? I think everyone would say yes. And for me, you know, I would continue to call myself a feminist in part because I think that that history is a is a good one, is an unimpeachable one, even if I agree with you that there are lots of other facets of feminism which are less welcome. Interesting point. So I don't think I'm trying to remember whether I actually included this, uh, but you know, in in the process of working on this, I started off assuming that it would definitely be the case that men commit a lot more partner violence. And when I turned to the empirical literature, I found out that actually there's a minimum. There's a lot of debate about this, and even on the question of intensity, we think well, you might say, well, men are more physically stronger than women, so even if women are just as likely to go and slap men as as men are to slap women, it hurts more when men slap women than the other way around. There's also a lot of evidence that women are more likely to use weapons or to just get a man to go and do the violence for them. So even there, I would say that part of what's going on is that they're like in the process of saying that we need, really need to be very concerned about men being mistreating women or male violence against women. There has simultaneously been a neglect of female violence against men, which actually seems to be by the numbers a very similar problem. It isn't in terms of the homicide numbers. So, again, like the homicide numbers, again, this is something that the people have talked about in literature. One of the main problems is that women are more likely to use a man to do their killing for them. And that would then not go down. Like, even if the woman were convicted, that would not go down as a female on male murder, but go down as a multiple offender homicide. You mean like love rivals yes, committing yes. homicide? Yeah. Right. Okay. But what is this? So women are also famously more likely to use hard to detect forms of murder, like poison. So... Again, of course, you may say, how well, how many women are poisoning their husbands or whatever? That's not many, but it's part of you know, murdering your spouse is not that common in general. So now we're talking about a small share. You know, so a, a rare thing divided by a rare thing can still be a substantial amount. But I think you would agree that I don't think there's anywhere near that much ambiguity on sexual violence numbers. That I, and I and I think more to the point because of the profound physical differences between men and women, which we agree on, women have more reason to be scared of men on a physical level and clearly are more scared of men on a physical level, which explains a great deal of, you know, why women are drawn towards some kinds of feminism. For sexual violence outside of prison, then yes. Like for all violence. So again, like, in a sense, you might say that like, you know, any time that there's a married couple and one of them is, is, uh, is beating on the other, you might call it sexual violence in some sense. But yeah, like in the narrower sense, no. But then there's the question of like, you know, violence is violence. So, you know, like, like if someone is putting you in the hospital, uh, you may say that it's even more traumatic if it's sexual violence, uh, possibly. Yeah, there's a lot more that we could say on this, but we've been, <laughs> I think we're at time for this part of the episode. 
let's talk beyond the we'll talk in the extended bit about selfish reasons for having more kids and also maybe we could also talk a bit about the um some of how these personalities some of these personality differences between men and women play out on societal level because I'm sure you have opinions on the feminization of public life so I'm gonna I'll ask I'll ask you about them beyond the break um for everyone else what's the name of the latest book and where can they get hold of a copy see the very latest book is called Voters as Mad Scientists, Essays on Political Rationality. Uh, you can get hold of that for 12 bucks uh, in paperback, $9.99 on ebook, on Amazon. All my stuff's on Amazon. Don't Be a Feminist, my main book that we're talking about, is also available on Amazon for the same price. And then I got uh, two new books that are in the pipeline. So early next year, I've got another nonfiction graphic novel coming about um, housing regulation, which does actually have a bit on uh, housing regulation and fertility. Because if you have to live in your parents' basement, you probably don't want to start a family. Uh, so I, anyway, that is uh, sim- you know, similar to My Open Borders, uh, which is a nonfiction graphic novel on immigration, so the social science of immigration. And then finally, the thing that I'm working on right now is called Unbeatable, the Brutally Honest Case for Free Markets. I admire productivity. That's an amazing output. <laughs> Brian, thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Maiden Mother Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my Substack at louiseperry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes. And you can also access our chat community. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try. Please also spread the word, tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it, give it a shot. Um, the word of mouth effect is really valuable. So we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching and supporting what we're doing. <laughs>